Hello and welcome to the Rare Disease Cell and Gene Therapy Monthly Roundup. Every month, we at Partners for Access bring to you some of the most important news developments in the orphan drug cell and gene therapy world and what they mean to you. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Aparna Krishnan and host of this very special episode, Kickstarting PFRA's Rare Disease Day campaign. I have with me three special guests, Jane Spink, CEO of Genetic Alliance UK, Nicola Whitehill, patient suffering from a rare condition, and Daniel Myers, mother of Dylan, who suffers from a rare growth and developmental disorder. It's been an extraordinary year with a pandemic affecting every aspect of life. But how has it been for rare disease patients? What were the key challenges they faced? Has there been any help from the government? To throw some light on all of these issues, and possibly get some answers, let's start the discussion with Jane. Jane, as CEO of one of a national charity and an alliance of over 200 patient organizations, you must have had a pretty good idea of the challenges faced by rare disease patients in the UK. Could you throw some light on these challenges, especially on access to treatment? Yes, Aparna, I think it's without a doubt that people affected by rare genetic undiagnosed conditions really have been amongst those hardest hit by the pandemic and particularly those who are at greater risk of infection or for whom an infection would likely have severe consequences and I think that the pandemic really has exacerbated you know many of the challenges that those with rare conditions were already facing not only with their health but also in relation to mental health and well-being and for many patients and families you know, they've faced a much greater isolation and for much longer than most. Many initiatives and services have been hampered or halted by COVID-19, and these include cancelled clinics, delayed referrals, cancelled operations, and of course, disruption to access to medicine, disruption of clinical trials and research, as well as crucially delays in accessing diagnoses. But in the wider aspects of living with rare condition, there have been other disruptions. So, for example, to care services in the home, um, we've seen that families have had difficulties accessing uh, personal um, protective equipment because of the need to self-isolate or shield. Perhaps they haven't been able to have people coming into the home to provide care services. And also, it's important to remember families have faced loss of income and also that some children have faced really lengthy disruption of their education throughout the pandemic. And these issues are still ongoing. Yes, um, these are some of the key challenges I can imagine. You mentioned clinical trial participation. So are you seeing a drop in uh, clinical trial participation? Well, anecdotally, um, patients who've been enrolled in clinical trials haven't been able to continue with their participation, where that's mm. involved travel to um, a central place or to a central clinic to access the clinical trial or any of the monitoring required. So undoubtedly, I think that there has been disruption to clinical trials for some rare disease um, patients. Also, um, and if you consider that uh, to participate in a clinical trial, um, you have to have the staff to conduct the trial, you have to have the clinical and research staff. And we do know that many um, doctors and researchers, that their time has been called upon to help tackle the pandemic. 
So there's been a sort of a double whammy. Firstly, the barriers to traveling to participate, but then also the resources to continue with these trials um, at the level of the research team. What about home care? For families who rely on daycare, for example, for um, in the context of a, um, an adult who has a rare condition or where you know, they uh, need care at home, perhaps from a professional carer, or perhaps where respite is a you know, really valuable thing for families. All of those services have been impacted. And we do know that, especially at the beginning of the pandemic, it was incredibly difficult when families were needing to find PPE um, to enable carers to come into the home safely. And we do know that a massive amount of increased strain has been placed on families where these aspects of care at home or daycare or respite have essentially evaporated due to the pandemic. Now let's get to some solutions. Has there been any government support at all? It's fair to say that um, the support has been somewhat patchy. Mm. In some places and from some agencies, people have had really excellent support, but in others, we've seen sort of severe issues, either which are down to locality or just down to the intrinsic difficulty of providing care and support during the pandemic. So if we think of education, uh, the obligations that were placed on local authorities into, uh, in relation to supporting those uh, with SEND, um, well, there was a modification of the Children and Families Act, which came into force on the 1st of May. And the amendment recognised that local authorities would not be able to deliver, um, as usual, the level of educational support available to children and only instructed local authorities to make reasonable endeavours to meet their obligations. And the level of reasonableness was not prescribed. And what this has meant that some local authorities and CCGs have delivered better than others and that a significant a significant knock-on effect of that is that some children have lost either all or a substantial portion of their entitlement to education. In terms of access to healthcare, well the concept of telemedicine isn't new but the pandemic's really been a catalyst for its greatly expanded use and we know that a substantial portion of rare disease patients have accessed remote care for the first time during the pandemic. And that's really been uh, very beneficial with over 80% of individuals who've accessed remote care saying that it's been a, a positive experience, but um, it's not a panacea because we know that one in five patients have had difficulties accessing their usual medication with remote consultations they are not the same as face-to-face -face consultations and some tests uh, and measures cannot be carried out. Perhaps drug initiation hasn't been possible for those needing to go on to therapies. So there are some basic tests that could be carried out at home by patients or carers, but only if they have the necessary equipment, such as weighing scales, measuring tapes, blood pressure monitors, and so on at home. And it's really important to remember that some people don't have access to the internet or to the technology, so tablets, phones and computers, that they need to get the best out of a remote consultation. 
And on top of that, I think it's also important to appreciate that there are accessibility issues that might make a remote consultation difficult or really impossible for some or inappropriate. Um, even for those welcoming remote consultations and who see these as reducing burden or risk. I think there are still uh, aspects of physical appointments that can't always be replaced by remote consultations. And sometimes you just do need those face-to-face -face appointments. So it's gonna be really critical to see how um, remote consultations can be continued and integrated into normal care pathways and into routine care, but also to understand the sort of timetable and the arrangements for reinstating these face-to-face -face consultations and to having clinics that are resource and able to continue supporting these face-to-face -face appointments with patients and families. During the pandemic, uh, the main form of protection for people with rare conditions has been either to shield or to stay at home as much as possible in protective isolation. And essentially these two things are the same, but the distinction arises from whether the person living with the rare condition had been placed on a clinically extremely vulnerable category. So if you were in that category, shielding did come with government and NHS support to isolate. But the other group, those who were um, isolating but not shielding officially, the support that they received needed to come from friends, families, neighbours and volunteers. And this duality in the arrangement has caused a great deal of worry and confusion for a great number of reasons. So firstly, in the four nations of the UK, guidance on shielding has been different. It uh, changed at different times and suddenly those changes um, have been opaque, sudden changes that have been difficult to, to uh, keep on top of for people. Letters conferring the extremely clinically vulnerable status. For some, those came late or not at all, and they cover different sectors of our community unevenly. So for example, even where people have the same condition, they could quite easily have received different advice in different parts of the country. Um, the distinction between the two tiers of people to help protect themselves has meant that those in the less protected tier have often felt abandoned and isolated because they didn't have that official support. And it's clear that a lot of the elements of real life haven't been covered by official guidance. So for example, consider a family who has a child who must be shielded, but they haven't had the clear guidance they, they need on what to do about a parent needing to go to work or a sibling um, being invited back to school. So I think it's been incredibly difficult um, and people with rare diseases have had to uh, do uh, make a lot of the decisions in the absence of the really clear guidance that would have been so helpful. Has there been any collaborations with other advocacy groups? Well, your audits have been absolutely fantastic. And as, as you know, Parna, they're a not-profit alliance of almost a thousand rare disease mm. uh, patient yeah. organisations from... 73 countries across the globe that work together and as the National Alliance for Rare Diseases we work incredibly closely with colleagues from across Europe 
and with your audits, um, we, on an ongoing basis, we contribute to a wide range of international in initiatives and programmes of work. And in April, your audits carried out a Europe-wide survey on the impacts of COVID-19 on those affected by rare diseases. And the data that was gathered from patients and carers in the UK really helped us to shape our early response to the pandemic. What I think has also been really fabulous is that the community has come together um, to discuss issues and to seek solutions and to collaborate throughout the pandemic on a weekly basis uh, via remote meetings. And I think those have really shown the strength of collaboration and of sharing what we know and our resources together to kind of tackle some of these big and emerging problems for the community around the pandemic. So I would say, yes, collaboration and, and working together is really being incredibly important uh, throughout the uh, 30 odd years or so of rare disease advocacy, but no more so than now during this year that has been really exceptionally difficult for the majority of, of those with rare conditions and also for the advocacy groups that support them. Thank you, Jane. Now let's get some personal stories. Uh, shall we start with Nicola Whitehill? Uh, hi, Aparna. Hi, everyone. And thanks for inviting me here. Um, I think Jane's given a really good uh, uh, resume there of uh, uh, the, the rare disease experience during COVID-19. But my personal situation, um, 24 years ago, so over half of my life now at the end of this year, I was diagnosed with the rare non-genetic um, autoimmune disease, systemic sclerosis, otherwise known as scleroderma. So basically what that means is, is that my body's immune system was on its own little frolic, um, ultimately causing fibrosis, so thickening of all of my organs, including my skin. So the, the, the um, panic or, or the, the uh, incentive when you have a scleroderma diagnosis is ultimately to have the diagnosis early enough so, so that the treatments, there is no cure, so there's only treatments which will suppress the symptoms, that the, the, um, the treatments will have some sort of effect. Um, so luckily for me, even though I was given 15 months to live back in 1997, I responded to the plethora of chemotherapy treatments as well as the IV chemotherapy regimes. So that meant then that um, by 2004, so seven years later, I was able then to withdraw from the chemotherapy um, for, and the immunosuppressants that were ultimately keeping me alive and holding the disease at bay by way of stopping my body from attacking itself. So um, over the last 24 years, um, as I said then, the first seven years was very active in taking chemotherapy and immunosuppressants and steroids. Um, uh, and then on the 1st of March 2004, I um, achieved a milestone in my personal career life of um, making it as a self-employed practicing barrister. And that's when um, I decided, along with my fantastic medic, who's a world-class leader in my disease of scleroderma, um, we decided that uh, the chemotherapy could be um, gradually withdrawn to see what would happen. So ultimately, the reason I'm telling you that is, is that so for the last 13 years of my life, I've been living in a sort of semi-shielding sort of existence in any event. By that, what I mean is, is that um, because of my immune systems being immunocompromised from all of the drugs, 
I'm very susceptible in picking up infections or colds. So even before COVID arrived, I wouldn't really be going to places such as the cinema or the, or anywhere where that you know the likelihood if someone sat behind me and sneezed that that could cause me quite um, a serious uh, you know bout of the flu or whatever. So COVID came along. And ultimately, my life didn't really change too much uh, in, in relation to the, you know, the isolation aspect of it. However, it did really change in that all of my medical appointments were put into telemedicine, um, which is great in, in, in that I don't have to attend the appointments because part of having scleroderma, systemic sclerosis, is that ultimately um, one of the symptoms, I, I call myself the real life tin man, so trying to move my body, trying to do anything takes huge effort and it's extremely exhausting as well. So um, although um, telemedicine is welcome in effect, uh, in another way, it's actually, um, I'm, I'm feeling quite anxious now that I haven't seen one of my consultants because it's a multidisciplinary disease, which I have. I'm feeling quite anxious that I haven't actually seen a consultant on a one-to-one -one because ultimately my situation is that um, I, I have to have close monitoring and I have annual tests on my um, heart and my lungs because it's a degenerative illness which I have. So although I've managed to stop the chemotherapy, I'm very much on a six monthly and a yearly investigational diagnostic journey to see if the, the, the disease is deteriorating in which case, if it deteriorates to an extent, then I'll be back on chemotherapy or possibly a stem cell transplant. So um, in relation to COVID, having so much um, research and the scientific community, I'm really encouraged by that because I've lived for 24 years. Nobody on the, on the street really knew what an um, antibody was. Nobody knew about the you know, autoimmune disease. And so I'm encouraged in the way that the conversation's now being opened up. Um, and I'm also encouraged in a way that my uh, symptoms of systemic sclerosis are showing very similar symptoms with long-term COVID, long COVID. So I'm hoping in a way that uh, my rare disease community will definitely be able to um, try and draw some positives to the COVID experience um, and for one example that's just springing up into mind now is the fact that somebody like me has had to wait in excess of 12 years for a drug to come to the marketplace, which even then the clinical trials for a drug to come to the marketplace, it's, I think the, it's a very small number. So the fact that um, with the vaccines now being um, rolled out within a 12 month period, I'm really encouraged by that in that um, clinical trials and um, research has COVID has definitely uh, accelerated uh, the advancement in that. Uh, and I've been very honored to be part of the um, urgent public health group for the National Institute of Health Research on the COVID-19 um, team. Uh, and that's really because of my um, personal experience of living with a long-term degenerative um, condition. So ultimately, um, COVID-19 has had some, um, had some positives in relation to the, the science aspect, um, but in relation to um, my care and treatment, I feel very much that I've been put um, 
towards the back of the queue from being in the rare disease category again by virtue of the fact that all of my um, appointments have been put into telemedicine or just cancelled. Um, but uh, I'm grateful for the rare disease um, community that we have here in the UK. And um, those meetings which Jane spoke about, I've been um, um, honoured to be part of and um, I've seen how the, the, the group, um, it's been a very good um, way of supporting each other as well during this um, challenging time. Thank you, Nicola. We also have with us Daniel Myers, a carer, mum of 10-year-old Dylan. Daniel, tell us your story. Thank you for having me today. Um, we decided as a family to shield at the end of February last year because Dylan doesn't have an immune system. He's an incredibly poorly life-limiting child. So when COVID came around, we decided to go into uh, our own bubble. Um, before shielding came in. Dylan's 10 years old, but he's stuck in the mind and body of a baby. So he's teeny weeny like a toddler. And to our knowledge, he's the only person in the world with his genetic undiagnosed condition. But individually, Dylan's got 31 different diagnoses, but no definitive condition. He's like Peter Pan. He gets older, but he doesn't grow up. Um, the beginning of lockdown, when my daughter was off school, my husband had to take time off of work. He's self-employed. Um, nobody wanted a painter and decorator in their house at that time. Financially, it was difficult, but we were all together as a four and the weather was lovely. Um, and it was just like being on a long holiday. Dylan was lovely. He had everyone he wanted around him. Obviously, he was missing grandparents and uncles and aunties and cousins, but he had mummy, daddy and sister there and, and it was kind of like we were in an extended holiday bubble um, because Dylan is so medically complex. He's under 19 different teams at Great Ormond Street. So you can imagine my life is his personal assistant taking him to and from appointments, investigations because he's undiagnosed. Um, we could be at Great Ormond Street four to five times a week. Um, so it seemed quite nice to have a break from this constant hospital appointments that we were constantly doing for 10 years. Um, just before lockdown came in, Dylan, who had a diagnosis of ADHD, was given a medication for this. So it calmed him down and it was actually quite nice because he's, as ADHD is, extremely hyperactive. Um, and Dylan's part of Dylan's genetic condition is that he doesn't sleep at night. So we have it 24 hours a day. So this medication was kind of taking the edge off of his hyperactiveness um but what what was required was weekly blood testing and bl weekly blood pressure tests and because of covid this couldn't happen the community nurses weren't able to come into our home um our local hospital didn't want dylan in the hospital so everything kind of went on hold for three months you know you we, we didn't think perhaps we didn't know what the consequences of this medication would be um, last July, we're sitting around the table and we looked over at Dylan. He'd had a facial palsy, so the right side of his face dropped. He'd had a mini stroke. We were ho horrified and we rushed him to hospital locally where he was admitted and transferred to Great Ormond Street Hospital for investigations. What's happened is Dylan had had an adverse reaction to the ADHD medication, which had caused his blood pressure to go so high that it caused this stroke. Um, he went on to have two more as well whilst we were in and out of hospital. 
so in the height of COVID, we're now in hospital and panic is worrying. You know, your child's just had this condition. He suffers with hypertension anyway. So he's already being treated for this. He's now adding lots more medications to it. Um, he's on about 35 medications a day. Um, at this time, it was also discussed with Dylan's lead consultant at Great Ormond Street Hospital that because of the current pandemic and Dylan having no immune system, he is on an immune therapy replacement, which is an infusion I give him at home weekly. But he's also on lots of immunosuppressant drugs, including chemotherapy, which he has weekly. Um, he has biologic injections daily. And he's also been steroid dependent for 10 years. He's had steroids every single morning for 10 years. So he decided to reduce one of them, um, which would be the steroid. So it was a, a whole regime, how to reduce it by one milligram a month and, and very, very slowly, um, which I was unsure of. I, I've, I've always had a gut that Dylan is very much steroid dependent, but I went along with the professor. He knows what he's talking about. Or I feel he did. Um, so Dylan's face recovered and he gained full movement, but he just wasn't right. So in the coming weeks and months, he was in constant, constant pain that he couldn't, we couldn't even control it with a really high dose morphine. So he's prescribed morphine four hourly on the dot, so six times a day, and it wasn't cutting this pain. One of Dylan's diagnoses is that he suffers a systemic inflammation. So this and 10 years along with chemo and 30 other plus medications has taken a toll on Dylan's teeth. And he requires three monthly checks at the dental team at Great Ormond Street. However, because of COVID, this couldn't happen. So what happened is he's had to be rushed into hospital and had 17 teeth removed all in one go in October, which again was a horrific thing for us because pain, you know yourself if you have a tooth out, I know I did last year or the year before and I was laid in bed for a night. So, but he's tough cooking, nothing, nothing faces our baby. So um, we're hoping this will put an end to him being not himself, but it didn't. Dylan's always suffered seizures since he was eight weeks old. Um, they've always come back as inconclusive and he's never been treated for them, but suddenly Dylan had developed this new seizure. And whilst in hospital being tested under neurology, he was having on average 140 during his awake hours in a day. It was horrific. He had no quality of life. He was falling. He was hitting himself. Um, they decided to treat it as epilepsy and medication was started. Um, the medication didn't seem to work and he still continued with these seizures. It was affecting everything. He was falling. He was hitting himself. He's being on steroids, very prone to bruising, he was bruising. His health was declining rapidly, but no one could put their finger on what was actually happening. By mid-November, he completely stopped eating and drinking. He was lethargic, sleeping most of the time. He'd lost so much weight. We were so worried about him. I'd been telling one of the, all of the consultants that I was worried that it was all linked to withdrawal of steroids, but they were adamant this wouldn't be a side effect until Dylan's immunologist at Great Ormond Street arranged for a sonaticum test at a local A&E, which proved Dylan doesn't produce his own adrenaline. He was so ill whilst we were having this test, he was admitted immediately. We were losing him. He was critically, critically ill. He wasn't well enough to administer a transfer 
immediately to Great Ormond Street. We had to wait for a week to stabilise him before we could be transferred to Great Ormond Street. We were put onto the oncology ward as it was so COVID secure. So although Dylan's on chemotherapy, has no immune system, he was pretty safe to be in there. Um, it was so isolating for me because at the local hospital, there was COVID on the wall. And although Dylan was in a cubicle, it was in your mind, you're on your own. It's one parent and you, you can't leave his bedside. And you didn't want to leave the bedside, even to have a shower, because you just didn't know if he was going to come out of this. Dylan needed two emergency surgeries. Within 48 hours at Great Ormond Street, he'd had a feeding tube, a peg inserted, as he was so malnutritioned and dehydrated and couldn't get any of his medications into him. He's also got such limited vein access that IV medicines were so tricky to get in. He needed a central line, but it just wasn't safe to put him under through another general anaesthetic at this time. Sometimes he needed twice daily bloods. It was just such an issue. We were in hospital for a month. We got home just in time for Christmas Eve. Um, it was probably the longest time I've ever spent in hospital because he has spent like, the first year of his life. It, me and my husband were together, so we shared the load. Um, however, one parent by bedside not being able to leave is just, it's just horrific. Having to repeat what the doctors tell me on the phone to my husband and family, having to phone my husband when he was dying in my arms and explain that over the phone it was but you carry on you have to you have no choice yeah. so during this time in hospital he also contracted a urine infection e coli and we found this when he went into adrenal crisis the adrenal crisis leads from the withdrawal of the steroids. So he really did have a problem where he couldn't be checked and he was only checked by video and telephone calls and I was speaking. This life-threatening, life-limiting condition was missed. Um, so as I say, he went unconscious in my arms and the crush team were called in seconds. Um, I thought that was it. We were told we were only meant to have Dylan for five months. We've got had him for 10 years. So every time you think this am I going to walk out of this hospital on my own um but he is the strongest fighter I know um it's a very slow recovery but we're home and making sure Dylan is seen by every consultant he needs during this lockdown there is no appointment that will be missed um we'll mask up I put him in a bubble in his wheelchair he's got a big rain cover over it and I just I will not not go in a hospital I will not not have a community nurse in my house because has he not have gone for that blood test he wouldn't be here and I wouldn't be speaking to you about this I'd be speaking to you about how COVID does kill and COVID can kill Dylan um, but so can the indirect effects of COVID so it's a real rock and hard place but as Nicola said before we've also been in shielding for Dylan's life um, so no, it's not that much different. Um, Dylan doesn't go to school, he's home educated. Dylan's never been to nursery. The only places Dylan really knows is the hospital. Um, I do a health check on everybody that come in my house prior to COVID. So now obviously no one does come in my house. Um, but the future does look pretty glum because Dylan can't be vaccinated. 
and it's not going to change anything so we can still carry it albeit mildly he can still die from it so how do you how do we move on from here I can't see it ever changing in my opinion um it sounds very pessimistic I know but we've just got to take each day at a time we've got Dylan and that is the most important thing so thank you so much for sharing that story with us. Um, I'm actually going to go to a slightly positive light and, and reach out to Jane to ask her if she has, uh, as part of Genetic Alliance, Rare Disease UK, any sort of uh, celebrations, any events planned for uh, Rare Disease Day? Upon a Rare Disease Day is usually a very positive and uplifting day for the community. And this year we really, you know, we really recognise the incredibly difficult situation that a lot of people have found themselves in, either because they have a rare condition themselves or they care for someone who does. And the, um, the, the, usual, the usual approach to rare disease, they just, just didn't feel right um, to us. There have been some sort of practical impacts of the pandemic and the restrictions that have meant that we're not able to host our usual rare disease day receptions in Westminster, the Senate and Holyrood, where we bring the community together with opinion leaders, policymakers, um, and politicians to raise awareness and celebrate rare disease day and the achievements of the community. So this year, our reception will be virtual and it will be different to the usual annual events, but what it will mean is that more people will be able to take part um, regardless of whether they're isolating or shielding or where they happen to be in the, in the country. And last year we hosted the UK's first film festival and a competition dedicated to raising awareness of rare diseases through filmmaking with an award ceremony that took place at the beautiful Regent Street Cinema in London. And that was a really positive, uplifting, moving, amazing event where we showcased the shortlisted and winning films. And again, this year because of COVID, um, it's meant that not only can't that event take place, but very few groups would be in a position to devote resources to producing and submitting films. And there are certainly impracticalities around filming those in lockdown or, you know, those self-isolating and shielding. So this year we're, we're doing things a little differently. We are going to be launching our Rare Reach Festival over the weekend of Rare Disease Day. And we're looking to celebrate online storytelling by the genetic rare and undiagnosed community. And we're gonna be working with the Eurodis themes, which I do believe are very positive and uplifting, which are rare is strong, rare is many, and rare is proud. And we're inviting charities and individuals to submit their social media content, be it videos, photos, blogs, and so on. And it can be from any time during the past two years, because we really want people to engage and be able to engage no matter what their current restrictions are. And we'll have a panel of expert judges and we'll also have a People's Choice Award. And we're really looking forward to seeing the submissions for that competition. And we're hoping that Rare Disease Day is gonna be as engaging and impactful as ever, but it will be a different experience. And we hope that these online and social media activities will really reach more people than our physical events have previously been able to. But we, we just really have to be mindful that these are different and difficult times, uh, especially for our community. 
Excellent. I will make sure to urge all our listeners to participate in any way they can in uh, any of the events. <laughs> yes, absolutely, absolutely. Um, also, uh, I'd like to add that uh, P4A are doing a sponsored run. We'll be doing a 7K for 7,000 rare diseases run. And this will be on the on February 28th, Rare Disease Day. Please uh, make sure to follow and uh, retweet our hashtag we are running for you uh, we'll also dedicate uh, any proceeds that we get we have a um, just a, a giving page as well and any proceeds any donations that come through it we will be we'll be giving that to red disease uk and i hope to see all of you celebrating and that's it for this month for more news and analysis, go to our website www.partnersforaccess.com. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Thanks for listening. See you next month.